Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. And so when you see things in the Word that are commands or things that He says He loves or, or whatever, it's not Him saying like, okay, here's what I want. Now be that and I'll want you. It's him saying, I want you, I love you, and I want you to be this, so I'll enable you, I'll make you this. So we find such an easy example of that is, we talk about it a lot, it's in the Word where it says that God loves a cheerful giver. And so the truth of the matter is, is when you go to a church service, whether it's your first time here, or you've been here a bunch of times, when when the music ends and someone gets up and they say we're going to take up the offering, something happens in your heart. Right? Like one way or the other. You're either excited or you're not. You're either cheerful about it or you're not cheerful about it. And here's the thing. Putting a smile on your face and writing a big check may impress the people that see that. And the people passing the baskets might look at you and think, wow, what a cheerful giver. That's awesome. But the truth of the matter is, is God's looking at the heart. And you can't head fake him. No matter how many zeros you add to the end of the check. Or how many fake smiles you paint on your face while you're giving. So this is like we we owe it to ourselves and to him because he paid for that. So if he says he loves a cheerful giver, that means he paid a price for us to be cheerful in our giving. And that's everything. That's our resources. That's our time, our abilities, the things that we have been given to steward. Everything he's entrusted us with, he wants us to cheerfully give away. Anytime he asks us to. So we owe it to ourselves and really to Jesus who paid the price for us to become that. To say, God, like, I know that your word says and I see where my life is and there's a gap. Just be honest enough. Like, don't paint a smile on your face and give and say, well, I, I know you love a cheerful giver, God, so I'm going to just put a smile on. I'm going to give this money. And in your heart, you're holding on to it as tightly as you can. You know, and the basket comes and you... Right? That's not cheerfully giving. And even if people around you thought so, awesome, there's your reward. Because God's looking at the heart. So if right now there's anything but cheerfulness towards giving your finances, get alone with him when you get a chance. And just ask him, God, I know anything you've called me to, grace has enabled me to become. What am I not seeing or believing or understanding? What lie have I believed that keeps me from cheerfully giving when it comes to whatever it is. You know, you may be free with money, but if somebody wants your time, mm mm-mm. It's my time, it's mine. It's valuable. It is. That's why it's such a blessing in giving it away. David said, I'm not going to give something that doesn't cost me. If your time's the most valuable thing you have, guess what? Every time you give it away, there's so much value to it, and it actually costs you something. But just get alone with him. Be honest with him because he already knows. You doing this is not you giving God permission to see what's in your heart. You doing this is you examining and seeing what's in your heart and saying to God, what I see in my heart isn't what you say in your word. There's something that's disconnected here. There's something I don't know, understand, believe. You said your people perish. Your people, good people. Your people, people that love you, God. Christian people. People perish for a lack of knowledge. So what is it that I don't know that's making me perish in this area, that's causing destruction in this area, God? Because I want to become everything that you called me to be. So God, I thank you for that. I thank you that along with your, your love of a cheerful giver, God, is the grace to become that. That everything you've called us into, grace has enabled us to become. And I thank you for that, Father. I just ask that we would have such a revelation of your heart, God, that we would freely give just as the Son freely gave us. Everything, God, holding nothing back, the least of which our finances. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Because there's such truth in that. Like, come on, we, we could just go through the motions, right? We could come to church. We could sing songs. We put some money in a basket. We could hear a message. We could tell the pastor what an amazing speaker he is and how awesome the message was. <laughs> and, and then we could just go home and we could go back to life and think nothing of the words that were spoken. Think nothing of the fact that, like, wait a minute, the God of the universe said this. Like, the Holy Spirit and Paul inspired Paul to write that God loves a cheerful giver. Well, God loves me. That means I'm supposed to be a cheerful giver. Not like I look around and I see the people smile on their faces and I think, whoa, God loves them. 
No, for God so loved the world, that means the, the, the world and the inhabitants thereof, so everyone, God loves everyone, that means everyone can find that place of being a cheerful giver because everyone is loved by God. It's not like it's for some super spiritual special people or those who have the gift of giving. Come on. You may not have the gift of giving, but you have the gift of grace in your life that enables you to become everything that God's heart desires. That's his responsibility. That's his part. Like Grace's part is to, is to make us. Our part is to simply say yes and actually do what he's called us to do. Like, um, I wasn't sure if we were going to go into this. We talked about this first service. Man, we, we saw uh, three people come into the kingdom of God first service. Like, yeah, I'm saying like, got it. Like, got it, got it. Like, you'll see. Not like some prayer, prayer blessing. There's a lot of blessing in it, but that wasn't what it was presented as. And I got to talk to two of them afterwards. One of them was here just on vacation um, visiting her sister, and she was just weeping and saying, thank you, thank you so much, thank you. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's, you know, uh, it's Jesus, it's what he does. Um, because it is what he does. He came to set captives free. He came to bind up broken hearts. He came to do all those things. And listen, everything, he is the word, and God said his word would not return to him void without accomplishing that which he sent it forth to accomplish. In other words, if Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted, he accomplished the way for your broken heart to be binded up. And if there's anything in you that thinks that you can't have your broken heart healed because of the circumstances, it's a lie because Jesus trumps every circumstance you've ever been through. There's nothing you've been through that's greater than what he went through for you. Nothing. I promise you. So um, we were talking about this in the, the first service, that, that the, the greater responsibility is always his. Well, I can't wait for this. The greater responsibility is always his. So he comes to, he comes to, to Peter. Now, when we read the Bible, we read it with the knowledge that we have already of, of what it meant. And you know, we, we've already read Ephesians before we read Luke. So we already know when he says this, he really means this. They didn't have that. Like Peter wasn't sitting there reading Romans when Jesus came up to him. I mean, you understand that? Like if he was reading anything, which he probably wasn't as a fisherman, but if he was, it would have been the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Torah, the Pentateuch, some of, the, some of those books, the prophets. And so Jesus comes along and hops in Peter's boat and he puts Peter out to sea and, you know, he preaches from his boat. He tells him, cast out your nets. There's so many fish, his, his net won't even carry it. And when they get to shore, he looks at Peter and he says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. We know, like, okay, he's talking about someone who would preach the gospel. Like, remember Peter on the day of, of Pentecost? He stands up in front of them and says, Now you see this Christ whom you've crucified as both Savior and Lord. What must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you too shall receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. We know all that. We've read Acts already. Peter hadn't read Acts yet. He doesn't know what it means to be a fisher of men. He just knows that this Jesus told him, If you follow me, I'll make you that. And apparently there was something in his eyes, there was something in his voice, there was something in Peter's heart that when Jesus spoke, he said, I believe him and I'll follow him even though I don't have it all figured out. Because Peter's part was simple, follow me. Think about it, you're going to take someone who is a fisherman, who has probably lived a pretty rough life, who, who like, how many of you guys know when, remember he cut off Malchus's servant's ear? How many of you guys know that he probably wasn't just trying to cut off his ear? Yeah, we read that, and we're like, oh, yeah, he cut off Malchus. We, we picture, like, Peter being like, aha, you know, and chopping an ear off, and Jesus saying, Peter, <laughs> putting the ear back on. He's trying to cut Malchus's servant's head off. This is who Peter is after following Jesus for a while. Look, don't be shocked if after following Jesus for a while, you find yourself every now and then wanting to do something that you know isn't in the character and nature of the Father. It doesn't mean you're not born again. It just means that you have to say no to what isn't him. Because Peter said, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the, he knew who Jesus was before any other human being. He's the first one to receive the revelation from the father of who Jesus Christ was. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bernardus, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I say to you, your name is Peter, and on this rock, this rock of revelation from the father, I'll build my church. On this rock, this rock of revelation, receiving not from people. You can receive from God, but from people, but it has to be God through them. Anything that a man gives you came from man. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. It has to be birthed by the spirit of God inside of somebody before it can actually change your life and bring revelation. So he said, now I'm going to build my rock. So this, this is, but Peter doesn't have the book of Acts. And how many of you know, even if he had the book of Acts, you know what part he probably would have thought about the most? He denies Jesus. 
or the, I'm sorry, the, the Gospels, he denies Jesus. I said I'd never let him down. Why? Because we always look at the things that we did wrong, especially the things that other people did wrong. It's why you call Thomas Doubting Thomas, not Courageous Thomas. Huh? Come on. We talked about this before, right? Jesus says, Let's, we're gonna go, I'm going to go to, Na- to Jerusalem. Now, they're waiting to kill him in Jerusalem. Everybody who's following Jesus thinks if we go to Jerusalem, we're going to die there. And so none of the disciples speak up when Jesus says we're going to go to Jerusalem when, when Lazarus dies. Except one person. He says, well, then let's go and die with him too. You know who that was? It was Thomas, the most courageous of all the disciples in that moment, the only one willing to follow him to his death at that moment, who speaks up and says, well, then let's go and die with him too. But the same Thomas says, I won't believe unless I can touch his hands and see the scars and put my hand in the wound in his side. And when we decide what we're going to call Thomas, we look at him in his worst moment and define him by his worst moment rather than seeing him at his best and defining him by his best. Come on, we got to stop doing that. You're not defined by your worst moment. It wasn't even that bad. All he said was, look, I'm having a hard time believing this. You guys might have had a hard time believing too if you found yourself in that situation. You followed this man your whole life. You thought that he was going to come and set up an earthly kingdom and destroy the Roman government and he was going to burn everything to the ground that wasn't God and, you know, all these, you're going to sit at his right hand, let his left hand, who's going to be the greatest? They, they really thought these things. And all of a sudden, their world crashes because the one who they put their hope in and their faith in is dead. Come on, let's, they didn't have the luxury of turning ahead a couple chapters. He's dead. And Thomas hears this. They're being hunted by the government. They're being persecuted. And Thomas makes a simple statement and says, you know, I'm not going to believe it unless I can touch something. I'm not taking your word or their word. I have to see it for myself. And suddenly, for the rest of eternity, he's called Doubting Thomas because he had one moment where he said, I'll believe it if I can touch it. Why don't we rewrite that and call him Courageous Thomas? Because he was willing, to, of all the disciples, to speak up and say, let's go die with him too. You're not your worst moment, and neither are the people around you. You know why we do that? Because it makes us feel better to call Thomas a doubter than courageous, because if he was courageous, that means we could be too. Calling him doubting Thomas gives us permission to doubt, because even Thomas didn't. He walked with Jesus. we got to get rid of that, you guys. See each other at our best. Call each other by our best. What do you think God remembers? You think God knows who doubting Thomas is? If he's the Lord who forgives their sin and remembers them no more, he doesn't even remember Thomas's doubt, but he remembers his courage. Come on. He looks at your life. He doesn't see that at times that you screwed up, that you asked him to forgive you for, because he said, I'm the Lord their God who will forgive their sins and remember them no more. He doesn't even know what you're talking about. He has no clue who doubting Thomas is. All he sees is Thomas, a son of God, who was ready to go give his life with his son and who preached the gospel and was one of the disciples that followed him after his death. He's not looking at him and saying, well, remember that one time. So stop doing that to yourself. Stop letting the enemy do that to you, and please quit doing it to each other. So Peter... I don't know where I am. Peter is on a boat, and Jesus says, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. What's the easy part? Is it to take this step and follow this rabbi? Or is it to take Peter, the fisherman who wants to cut off servants' heads, and make him Peter, who would be crucified upside down, laughing, saying, I'm not even worthy to be hung in the same manner as my Lord? who would stand in front of the very ones who crucified Jesus and look them in the eyes, knowing what they've done to Stephen. He couldn't, a few days before, he couldn't even say that he knew who Jesus was. A little girl says, hey, you're one of his men. You were with him. This is the Peter we're talking about, that Jesus said, I'll make you a fisher of men. Little girl says, you're one, you're, hey, you were with him. I never knew the man. Hey, that's one of you. Weren't you one of his disciples? I never, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know who he is. This Peter stands in front of the same people who crucified Jesus, knowing what happened. What would happen to, I'm sorry, not to Stephen, what happened to the people who were being persecuted to follow him, knowing what happened to John the Baptist, knowing all this. He stands in front of them and says, And now you see this Christ, whom you crucified as both Savior and Lord. What's he saying? You killed Jesus, the Messiah. He was the one who came for you, and you crucified him. He's got the courage to do that. He's got the courage to trust God and deliver a word that wasn't going to be popular so that the Spirit of God would have truth to work with. And they fall on their faces, 3,000. Well, what must we do to be saved? Repent, be baptized. This Peter, 
Jesus says, if you follow me, I'll make you that. Your responsibility isn't to make yourself who he created you to be. Your responsibility is to follow Jesus and trust that he will. He didn't tell Peter, follow me and figure out how to be a fisher of men and practice at it and get good at it and go to school for it. He didn't say any of that stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with going to school and learning or any of that stuff. But never let that be a replacement for actually following Jesus and trusting him to change you. That stuff can be an addition. That's great. Go to school. Learn. Talk to people. Go to conferences. Do, do all that stuff. But never, ever let that be a replacement for the one thing he said would actually change Peter. That was, follow me and I'll make you. And he's saying to every single one of us, follow me and I'll make you who you were created to become. You just follow me. That's it. I'll make you who you were created to become. You don't have to figure it out. for You think Peter had it all figured out? You think Peter stood there when Jesus gave that answer and said, fisher of men, probably not going to go out and grab men with a net. He must be talking hypothetically. Maybe he means he's going to be crucified and give his life for us, and we'll actually be able to become born-again sons of God, and I'm going to be entrusted to preach the gospel to the Jewish people. And I'll be the one that carries that revelation to them, and I'll see a bunch of them saved. Oh, that's what he means, fisher of Come on, we think we have to have everything figured out. We just have to have something figured out, and that something is Jesus. That's all he had to know is, I trust you. He didn't have to have it all figured out. He didn't have to have the whole plan figured out. He didn't have to say, well, I know what that means. You're speaking in metaphor. That's awesome, Jesus. I'll follow you. Let's go. Start making me this. He didn't do any of that. He just looked at Jesus, and there was something about him that he said, I'll trust you with my life. I'll follow you. And Jesus said, if you'll do that, I'll make you who I created you to become. Just remember that. His part is to make you who you were created to become. Your part is just to trust him, follow him, let him change you, let him mold you, let him shape you, let him father you, let him love you to that place. And uh, so I was, I was thinking earlier, I was talking about that. It's okay if I just kind of ramble a little bit. I'm going to anyway, so say yes, then you're on the winning team. Your team wins. Um, I, I, was, we were, I was sharing earlier that I had talked to someone earlier this week, and, uh, and, and this is not against that person, but they, they asked me, they said, so how are you doing? And I said, man, I'm doing really good. And they said, well, how's Patty doing? I said, she's doing awesome. And they said, how come every time I ask you how you're doing, you say really good? And it wasn't like, hey, that's awesome, tell me the secret. You can, you can say the same thing with different heart, and it means totally different things. Who cooked these brownies? Who cooked these brownies? It wasn't who cooked these brownies. It was who cooked these brownies. And you could hear the challenge in their voice when they asked that question. And I, it made me think about it. And I said, well, because I really am. He said, so you're not, there's nothing going on in your life? I said, whoa, that's a total different question. I thought you asked me how I'm doing, not what's going on in my life. If you want to know what's my circumstances, you could ask me about my circumstances, and if they're worth talking about, I'll probably talk to you about them. But the truth of the matter is, is one is not dependent on the other. These are two separate questions. How I'm doing and what am I facing have nothing to do with each other. Because I'm not doing only as good as the circumstances around me. He said, well, don't you ever have anything going on that bothers you? I said, I have stuff that goes on that I don't like all the time. It has nothing to do with how I'm doing. I said, I could tell you 15 things right now that I don't like, but why would I do that? Because you asked me how I'm doing. I'm doing really good. He died on a cross for my sins. He filled me with his spirit. He wiped out the record that was hostile against me. He nailed it to a cross with Christ, and it will never be brought up again. He lives inside of me. He thought his life was worth mine. He traded the life of his son for my life. Why would I be doing anything less than good? That's not a robotic answer. That's truth. That's saying, my eye is single, and I'm looking at Jesus. If I took my eyes off of him for a second, I could probably find a bunch of things to talk to you about. But what's more important, what he did or what people have done? What people haven't done? Come on, we let so many things rule us. And we're supposed to have one Lord, one ruler, one king. I'm t- listen, it's the truth. And that's the only thing that sets you free. 
See, here's the thing. If we're only doing as good as everybody around us' ability to do everything right, then we will constantly have a reason why we're living less than Christ died for us to live. And we'll let everything be a reason why we're not okay. Everything. At some point, we owe it to ourselves to actually believe the truth and let the truth that we believe be the thing that flows from us when someone asks us how we're doing. When someone asks you how you're doing, that should be a loaded question for the gospel. Because what's the greatest thing in your life at that moment? If it's the test or the, or the trial or the circumstance or the people coming against you, listen, you, they, like God doesn't surround you with a golden cloak when you become a pastor and people go, I would say something mean to them, but they're a pastor. <laughs> I would talk badly about them, but they're a pastor. That, that, that doesn't happen. In the old covenant, you'd have leprosy. I'm not saying you, none of you guys, none of you guys would ever talk badly about your pastor. I'm saying some people on the podcast that maybe have grumbled against their pastor. That's not how it works. But it's okay, because none of that is how I'm doing. That's not how I'm doing. That's a little baby in there that doesn't know that mom's about to feed them or mom's about to change them. They haven't learned from the character and nature of mom yet, but there's a day coming when they get hungry rather than crying. They'll trust that mom loves them enough to give them something to eat. And guess what? We can walk with God for a long time and sound like that every single time we go through something. Or we can say, no, listen to me. I'm telling you, there's people that are 35 years walking with the Lord, and every time something happens, wow, as if God's not going to come through. Think about the people of Israel, right? Think about, no, think about this, because this is serious. We owe each other this. You get serious now. Don't laugh in church. <laughs> Someone should have told you by now that when you can laugh in the parking lot, and you come through those doors, you get a somber face. That's why people said, like, I, I like that you dress normally. I'm like, I, I'm not going to buy special clothes to dress up to act like I'm something I'm not six days a week on one morning a week. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to do it. This is as dressed up as it gets right here. There's no holes in my jeans today. But listen, think about this. What, what if the children of Israel... See, because this changes the way we talk to each other, not just the way we talk to ourselves. What if the children of Israel would have got it in the desert when they were supposed to? You realize Jesus accomplished in 40 days what it took them 40 years to do. He went into the desert... He learned to rely and trust on God. He learned to value his word above what he felt. And he learned to defeat the enemy and overcome him by what the father had spoke being the loudest thing in his ear versus what the enemy was telling him or what his flesh felt in the moment. That was all he had to do in the desert. That was all they had to do. Instead, they walked a crooked path. Jesus came, made it straight. A 40-year path became a 40-day path. Why? Because he actually trusted and obeyed. What if the children of Israel would have got it? Think about this. And, and think about this. What if... Just say, say we're all the children of Israel. It's 20 years in. We've seen God take us out of Egypt. We've seen him swallow up the Egyptians behind us after parting the sea in front of us, none of which we asked him to do. We've seen rock, water pour out of a rock. Every day when we wake up, every day, there's manna. And every night when we go to sleep, there's nothing to eat. No, after 20 years... A group of us get together and say, what are we going to do? There's no food. Well, there's manna. Yeah, there was manna. It's all rotten now. What are we going to do tomorrow? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. We better pray. I'd say we'd better fast, but I think we're going to have to tomorrow whether we like it or not. You're right. Get the shofars. Gather the people. We have no food. Okay, if someone was doing that, wouldn't someone that knew better owe it to them to come over to them and say, why are you acting this way? Why are you, are, how can you act that way? Don't you remember yesterday when you woke up how there was manna for you to eat? The only way you can act this way is if you have completely forgotten everything that God's already done and everything he's promised to do. You're taking your eyes off of that and that and you're putting them on moldy manna and you're basing your decisions on a feeling that you have. Your feelings lie to you constantly. Truth never does. 
Why would you want to gather people together and pray for something because you have a feeling when God's already spoke and given you a promise that you can live by that speaks a better word? You're, listen, your emotions lie to you all the time. I, we, I, this example works for everybody. You ever cried watching a movie? Who hasn't cried ever watching a movie? Don't raise your hands. You did it. Old yeller. Second grade. Hmm? Look, well, listen, there's not one hand up. Now, let me ask you this. Did you not know that you were watching something on a television screen? On a movie screen? Did you not know that those people that were doing that really weren't doing that? Yet you had an emotion that brought about a physical response. And it was all based on something that isn't real and that you know isn't real. You see how easy your, your emotions can deceive you? You see how easy feelings could lead you to a place that you were never meant to be? And if somebody walked into the room five minutes after the movie ended and you're wailing. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Now, you're wailing, snotting, ugly crying. And they're like, whoa, what's wrong? <sighs> and you can't even speak. And you're like, Jack never got to marry Rose. Guys are like, what are you talking about? Oh, you know. <laughs> Listen, wouldn't somebody owe it to you to tell you, hey, uh, <clears throat> you know that's not real? It's not? No, never happened. That diamond, fake. Every bit of it, fake. And even if it did happen, it's not your reality today. Because here's something that we grab a hold of sometimes and we hold up when people try to talk to us and tell us the truth is we take something that really did happen and we make that bigger than the greater thing that really happened as well. And then we say things to each other like, well, you don't know what it's like because you've never, as if we know everything that each other's been through. I've talked to, listen, I have sat and talked with people and I've been through what they're going through. I just haven't made it an open thing because you don't entrust everything to everyone. Jesus didn't. He said he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of all men. Some things you keep to yourself, you let love cover a multitude of sin, right? Not everything has to be spoken about. There's power in testimony. If God tells you to share it, you share it, but sometimes you don't have to. And I'm looking at them, and I've been through what they've been through, and I'm telling them the truth of the, of the word of God that both I've learned and I've experienced and seen in my life, and no matter whether I have or not, it's the truth from his word. And they look at me and say, that's easy for you to say, because you've never. And if I told them, actually, I have, and I told them a story, suddenly they would believe me. What does that mean? We put the word of man above the word of God, and the only way we'll believe the word of God is if you've validated it with your life, as if God's word needs validation by my life. Come on, that's a dangerous place to be in. Because guess what? Every single one of the Israelites could have fallen apart every night when their food molded because none of them had proof that there was going to be food the next day unless they actually believed that God was who he said, would do what he said, and they had faith that what he did yesterday and today, he'll do tomorrow. At some point, they had to get over their experience and their feelings, and they had to actually walk by truth. Guys, we owe it to each other to not jump in and join the party when somebody's crying because foods ran out when we know there's a greater promise of food tomorrow from the Lord. We owe it to ourselves to look at each other and say, listen, the first service, I bawled like a baby when we sang What a Beautiful Name. I hadn't heard that song in eight months. Some of you guys remember last time, last time I, I won't even listen to it on the radio, right? I wouldn't up until today. Because the last time I heard it was at the funeral or calling hours of one of my very closest friends I've ever had. And hearing that song just brought all that emotion back. And I just was on my knees just weeping and weeping. And I felt sorrow and I felt grief and mourning and all those things. And, but in, and as I'm praying, it's as if God really is the lifter of your head. And I took my eyes off of what I had lost and I put them on what I had gained. And I found myself in the place of saying, God, I'm so thankful that even if it was just for a short time, I had that relationship with him because that relationship with him for a little while on earth means I'll know him forever and eternity. And the next time I see him, I'll never not see him again. And all of a sudden, truth comes 
Does that mean that it brought my friend back from the dead? No. It means that no matter what's happened, there's a truth that's greater. And he promised he'd turn my mourning into dancing. And the second time we sang that song today, I actually found myself dancing because I've once again had taken my eyes off of this thing and I put my eyes on him. That's not to say there's not a place for mourning. It's saying that you can't stay there because he never intended for you to stay there. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't pitch your tent there. You don't camp out and make a homestead there. He said, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil because you're with me. So if I'm walking through there, he's with me. I'm not afraid while I'm there, but I keep walking. I don't go, God, I guess this is where you want me to live. No, he died so that you could live a greater life than sitting in the valley of the shadow of death. He said that you'll face trial in this world, but take heart for he's overcome the world. What's he saying? He's saying anything you face, I faced it and destroyed it. And now you're in me. So why would anytime someone asks me how I'm doing, my answer be anything less than good if I really am found in him? Because if there's any other answer that comes out of my mouth, because this is the problem. When someone asks you how you're doing, the first thing you think of is all the frustrations or the tension or the greatest problem that you're facing at that time. And that becomes your testimony rather than, oh man, you want to know how I'm doing? I'm doing awesome. There was a time where I was living my life completely oblivious to the Son of God. I turned my back and acted as if he didn't exist. I was living so selfishly. You have no idea the person that I was before I met Jesus. I can't stand who I was. You really wouldn't like me. If I met me today, I'd beat me up. <laughs> no, really. And, all of a sudden, and, and why? Because I'm most aware of what he's done for me because my eyes are fixed on him. I'm most aware of the promises of God over my life. So if I find myself in a moment of mourning, I start thanking him. God, I thank you that you said you'd turn my mourning into dancing. God, you said you would turn my mourning into dancing. You didn't say, Roy, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and turn your mourning into dancing and fake it till you make it. You said you would genuinely turn my mourning into dancing. So I'm going to trust you and put my eyes on you and say, God, come and do what you said you would do. And guess what he does? He comes and does what he said he would do every time because he's not a man that he should lie. And so um, I was thinking about all that, and then I had this message ready to preach, and they kind of worked together. So um, open your Bibles up to, we'll make it official with scriptures. I've already said a ton of scripture, right? Like, I hope. Um, uh, But open them up to John chapter 3, and let's just talk about this real quick, because I think that uh, there's something in here that's really cool, and uh, and I'd love to to just talk about it for a second, and then... uh, and then we'll just like God do what he wants to do. Well, I'm trying to do that now. But So John 3 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus comes to him at night. Why? Well, because he's worried about what people think. The fear of man is a snare. But at least he went. It might have been night, but at least he came. The rest of them didn't even come. He comes to Jesus at night and he says, uh, you know, we know that you're a, a rabbi, teacher, you know, sent from God because no one could do the signs that you do unless God was with him. So he comes to Jesus and what he says is, I believe there's a God and I believe that God sent you. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today because we think, ooh, Pharisee's bad, but the truth of the matter is, is the Pharisees were, were people who Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom. He was holding them up as the standard for human righteousness. They were good people as far as that goes. They, they were church every time the doors were open. They, 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 they fasted twice a week, sometimes more, but at least twice a week they fasted. They memorized the Old Testament, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. Most of them, by the time they were 12 years old, they had memorized the Pentateuch. They searched the scriptures looking for Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, in vain you do search the scriptures. But these are those that point to me. But he didn't deny the fact that they genuinely searched the scriptures looking for him. They prayed all the time. He said, you know, they might have done it with the wrong heart, but they did these things. This is who Nicodemus is. They tithed. He said, you tithe the tenth of all that, you know, your mint and all your other stuff. They gave. They tithed, they prayed, they fasted, they were at church, they studied the scripture, they memorized scripture. This is who's talking to him. He looks at him and he doesn't even ask Jesus a question. He comes to him and says, you ever notice that? He says, Jesus answered him. What did he ask? He didn't ask anything, but Jesus knew the question that was in his heart. So he says, basically in a nutshell, look, 
I believe that you're a teacher that was sent by God because no one can do the things you're doing unless God's with him. Jesus answers him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You ever, you ever think about like Jesus' replies when people would come to him? This guy comes to him and says, hey, we know that you're a teacher sent by God. No one can do the things you're doing. Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, no one's going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Again, he doesn't have the New Testament. He doesn't go, born again. Oh, this is what Paul was talking about in Corinthians where he said, if any man be in Christ, he is therefore now a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away and everything's become new. He didn't have that luxury. He didn't turn to Romans and see that we were baptized into his death with him and raised to newness of life in Christ. He couldn't pull out Romans. All he had was the Old Testament to look at. And, he's, and, and, the, and, the, and the prophets, which prophesied this coming, but they had it all mixed up anyways. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you have to be born again. And so Nicodemus does what any one of us probably in that moment would have done had we actually lived when he lived. He looks at him and says, uh, dude, I'm old. Like what he's saying is basically, I kind of know how things work now. I don't believe in the stork anymore. How would I get back up in there? <laughs> this is what he's saying. Like, don't sterilize it down. It's the truth. He says, how can a man be born again when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? <laughs> like, maybe this Jesus who turns water into wine knows something I don't. But based on what I know... And it's not going to happen. And Jesus looks at him and says, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And I marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He says, Nicodemus, listen, you're not thinking the right thing. You realize Jesus would do this a lot. He would give them an answer that was a prophetic answer that at the time, maybe they didn't even have access to. You realize that Nicodemus couldn't be born again at that moment. Jesus hadn't given his life and been raised from the dead. He hadn't become an example, the firstborn of many brethren, to be died, raised to newness of life. He hadn't become sin so that we could become the righteous. None of that stuff had happened yet. But he's telling Nicodemus this prophetically because there's a day coming. Remember when Jesus was talking to disciples? He said, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But there's a day coming when the Holy Spirit, he'll bring into your remembrance all these things I've spoken to you. You know what he was talking about? He's saying all the prophetic things that I told you that you couldn't understand or that weren't available to you. When the day comes that you can't understand and that they are available, he'll bring that back to your remembrance and you'll see things happen. And you'll go, oh, this is what he was talking about. So he's trying to give Nicodemus a teacher of, the, of Israel. He says to him, he says, you, you Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? He's saying what? He's saying, listen, you have to be born through water. Not, he's not talking about water baptism there. Water baptism is part of being born by the Spirit. He says, you were born by water. The womb full of water is where the baby is. When the water breaks, the baby comes out with all the water, right? He says, you're born of water and then of Spirit. Not like, you know, two separate baptisms, although there could be, we can't get into all that stuff, but... He's not saying you're born of water and then you're baptized of water and then you're baptized by the Spirit because he clarifies that in the next sentence. He says that which is flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, you were born into one, you have to be born again into the other. One was born by flesh, one was born by the Spirit. And so Nicodemus now is just completely confused. And Jesus, then he tells him, he says, hey, it's the, the, the wind, you know, you can't see where it comes from or where it goes. But you hear a sound. And so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus is really clear on all this. <laughs> What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, listen, you, you won't see physically the Spirit of God making people born again. But you'll see the effect of it like you do with the wind. And you'll hear the sound of it. When you got born again, things changed. And you actually looked different and you sounded different. Even though no one saw the Spirit of God come inside of you and make you born again. Nicodemus has no clue because Jesus is speaking to him prophetically and there's a time coming when he would. Then he, he ends it with this. And, if Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Nicodemus is now just completely confused. And he's got all these things, but there would be a day coming where Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, would be among those who saw Jesus raised up. 
and the Holy Spirit. This is why when you talk to people, you owe it to them to give them truth. Because if you don't give them truth, there's nothing the Spirit of God can use to bring into their remembrance. He has nothing to work with outside of truth. In love, but you have to give people truth. You can't cater to feelings and give somebody something that's not true for a sense of false hope in a moment. Because whenever that moment of false hope is gone, there's no truth there for the Holy Spirit to work with. We owe it to each other to give each other truth. Because it's the only thing that makes us free, and it's the only thing the Spirit of God works with. Everything Jesus spoke was true, so every word the Spirit of God could bring back to remembrance and actually start to show and explain. And what does he say? He says, even as a serpent. What was the serpent? You remember that story? It was Moses. Remember? Moses had the people, and they're out there, and they've been grumbling and complaining, and suddenly these serpents come, and they begin to bite the people and destroy the people, and God says to Moses, fashion the thing that's destroying my people and put it on a cross and hold it up. And when my people look at that, they'll be saved. And the thing that's destroying them will no longer destroy them. Jesus says, listen, it's going to be the same thing with me. See, Jesus didn't come and act sinful so that you could act righteous. He became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What was he saying? He's saying, Nicodemus, when you see me lifted up on a pole, know this, the thing that was destroying God's people I've become that thing, and I've been lifted up onto a cross, and whoever would look to me, whoever believes in me, the thing that was killing them and destroying their lives will no longer have any effect on them because I've become that thing so that they could become what I created them to be. And Nicodemus has no idea, and he just thinks serpents and Moses and Jesus and somehow getting back into the womb. But there's a day coming where the Spirit of God could take that truth and say, this is what Jesus was talking about. Remember when he told you that? Remember when he said the same way that the serpent, the thing that was destroying God's people, was raised on a pole, and everyone that looked at it was saved? Well, guess what? The thing that was destroying God's people, he's become that. He's been made that thing. He became sin that knew no sin. God made him sin and judged sin in the flesh in Jesus. He actually became it, and then they raised him up on a pole, and every person that would look to him, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. He said, when they make me become that thing, everyone that looks at me, the thing that was destroying them, I'll become that and it won't touch them again. Sin shall no means master over you. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Reckon yourself in the same way, reckon yourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ. No longer slaves to sins, but slaves to righteousness. Don't you know that you are a slave to him who you present yourself as a slave to and it shall be mastered over you? That's all in your Bible. And all Jesus was telling Nicodemus was, listen, you have to be born again. And for some reason, we've lost sight of what it means to be born again. And we've, we've made it to be this prayer where I pray a prayer and then I return back to life. Listen, you know, there is a thing where, where it says where you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. For with the heart man believes, with the mouth he confesses unto salvation. That's truth. It's in your Bible. But that was the starting point. That was the follow me and I'll make you something. That wasn't say this prayer and you become it instantly. There's a process in following Jesus where we become everything he created us to become, but it starts with actually being born again so that the Spirit of God comes inside of you and creates new life, born the first time into Adam, born again into Christ. You were born into sin, born again into righteousness. And I'm telling you, there was a lot of people who lived like Nicodemus, and there still is. I got invited to speak to this big college thing, right? I present the gospel, just what it is to be born again, looking at him and saying, he's the one that's on the cross. He became my sin. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. I need forgiveness. I can't forgive myself. Would you be my Lord? Would you be my Savior? See, Peter said, remember this Christ. Now you see this Christ whom you crucified is both Savior and Lord. What's he saying? He saved you, but he also is to be your Lord. Not just Savior. Savior is I, uh, I'm no longer going to be going to hell. I now can live eternally united with the Father. But Lord means he's actually my master and he has an opinion about my day every single day. And the Spirit of God would come and live inside of me to lead me and guide me into truth so that I would become everything he created me to become. You realize that? Like, Say that to people. Tell them you have a spirit God. The only people that doesn't freak out are new age people. They think that's awesome. Most Christians are like, mm, but you listen. Jesus said when he comes, the spirit of truth, he'll lead you and guide you into all truth. That means you can't be led and guided into truth unless the spirit of God is leading you. And to think that we could just pray a prayer and then go back to living our lives with us as the master. He's my savior, but I'm still Lord. So every day I live my life how I want to live it. And to think that I'll end up where he wants me at the end of my life is foolishness. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the spirit of God to lead us and guide us. We would just lead or guide ourselves into all truth. Couldn't do that. That's why you had to die and let him become Lord born again, a new creation filled with the Spirit. So I'm preaching this gospel, 
And I give an invitation. I said, listen, this is not you're just going to pray a prayer or emotional response. This is saying, I need you as Savior. I make you my, my Lord. I want to give my life to you. I want to be born again. I want the Spirit of God to come and recreate new life inside of me. I want everything that was to pass away and all things to become new. And I said, if you want to do that, it starts with just confessing with your mouth what right now you're believing in your heart. And what God's doing in your heart comes out of your mouth, and instantly that changes, and you step from death into life. And the girl who booked me to come stands up and gives her life to Jesus and gets born again. Because Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and he's telling Nicodemus, listen to me. Going to church, that's not going to save you. Praying all the time isn't going to save you. Fasting isn't going to save you. Memorizing scripture isn't going to save you. Searching scripture leads you to me. But if you don't find me, you can search in vain all day long. That won't save you. This is what saves you. This is, he said, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. And I, I just, I've been around enough Christian people to know this, and I know this is a super simple message, and I'm sorry if you've heard this before, but the last service, there was three people that said, I need to be born again. Going to church. Listen, you've never been to church more than a Pharisee. You haven't. Some of them lived in the temple. You probably haven't fasted as much as they have. I doubt any of us have the first five books memorized, never mind one book. On your own, you haven't lived a righteous life as righteous as a Pharisee. They were Jesus' standard for human righteousness. And none of that would save Nicodemus. None of that would save us. What would save us would to be born, be born again, a new creation in Christ. And so I just want to give everyone an invitation because next week we're going to be talking about what it looks like to actually grow into all things that, that of Christ who is the head, like Ephesians talks to us about. What does it look like to mature and to become everything? That's, follow me and I'll make you. Not follow me and you are. Follow me and I'll make you. In other words, there's a process, Peter, and you might still want to cut people's heads off after three years, but guess what? I'm still committed to you and you can still follow me and I'll still make you. So uh, I just, real quickly, without don't look around. Because, you know, sometimes people care who's looking. They do. The fear of man's a snare. So is there anybody here? And I'm, I'm going to close up with this and just give us an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Is there anybody here? And, and I, it, listen, maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe the people around you will be shocked when you actually say, I need to be born again. Because you've been doing the Christian thing for so long, everybody just assumes you are. Maybe you hold a position somewhere, but you've never actually been born again, and you know it. Oh. I should lower my tone. But I won't do that. Now listen, here's the truth. It's not an emotional response. Maybe you feel emotions. That's awesome. When we're contemplating what Jesus did for us, if it doesn't make us emotional, at some point something's probably broken. If you've never actually been born again, you've never come to that place where you said, God, I want the me who was born into Adam, born into sin, to die. I want to be born again into Christ, the second, the last Adam. I want the mind that is enmity to you, God, hostile towards you to be replaced with the mind of Christ. God, the spirit of this world to leave and the spirit of God to come. Basically, what you're saying is, I want to get off my throne and I want to put you where you belong as Lord. If you've never done that, you can do that today. And it's super simple. And it's a lifelong process. And it starts with saying, I need and want a Savior and a Lord. And Jesus, you're the only one who's ever died for me, who's ever been raised in newness of life. I believe that in my heart. I want to confess it with my mouth. And I trust that you'll do everything that you said. And the Spirit of God will come and take up residence in me. And this new life will begin. If you want to do that today, you can do it right now. 
And listen, don't worry, like, don't, honestly, don't worry about what everyone's thinking. You want to know what everyone's thinking? Everybody in here who's born again is thinking, dear God, let anybody who doesn't know you know you the way that I do. God, let them experience the freedom that I've experienced. God, let them know the joy that it is to know you and to be one with you. God, let them know that, that let them experience the love and the peace that comes, that guards our mind, that passes every bit of understanding. That's what everyone around you is thinking right now. I promise you. So is there anybody here that wants to do that today? Before we move on, if you do, just put your hand Is there anybody else? If there is, just put your hand up and we're going to pray. Just, yeah, if you do, that's cool. Just put your hand up and all you're saying is, I want this. Like, don't let it pass. Listen, like, it's the greatest thing ever to know that I've passed from death into life that all things have passed away, and behold, everything has become new. God, Jesus, uh, Paul wrote, he said in, in Corinthians, he said, Now we see that God was through Christ, reconciling the world to himself, so we beg as though God himself begs through us, be reconciled to God. What's he saying? God did everything on his end. Everything has been taken care of on his end. He settled it. When Jesus said it's finished, it really was finished. Now he's asking you simply to respond to the offer that's been made, to follow me, and I'll make you. Is there anybody else before we move on and pray? If there is, just raise your hand. We can see it. All right, so here, let's just do this. Everybody in here, just begin to pray. If you're one of the people that raised your hand, I'm just going to ask that you do this. I'm going to ask that you respond with your mouth to what's in your heart. It's not a magic prayer. Repeat after me. It's simply this. It says, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that God raised, that he died and God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And he says, with the, with the heart you believe, with the mouth you confess unto salvation. It means that simply opening my mouth and speaking what I know is true in my heart. And so if that's you, everybody else, if you didn't put your hand over, you don't need to pray that prayer because you've already been born again, then would you just start to pray for the people who did? And just pray that God would come right now and just cover them with his love, that he would come and show them the price that he paid for their life, that he would come, the Spirit of God would come. Come, Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, would you come right now and just fill every person that is making their, that declaration today, God. Would you fill them with you to overflowing, God? Would you show them who they are? Show them why you died for their life, God, that you thought they were worth the life of your son. Father, I thank you that none of this has anything to do with a circumstance, and every bit of it has to do with your truth that you're greater than anything we've done, that anything we've faced is nothing compared to what you've faced for us, that anything done to us is nothing compared to what's been done for us, that today we can step into the kingdom of, of light out of the kingdom of darkness, born again, a new creation, filled with your spirit. God, I thank you for that. In Jesus' name.